Money Sense is brought to you by the Ellen Becker Investment Group, three-time recipient of the Better Business Bureau's Torch Award for Business Ethics and Integrity. The Ellen Becker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com. Listen to Money Sun Saturdays at 2 p.m. and Sundays at noon. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Sandra Geisler, Director of Tax Planning for the Ellen Becker Investment Group. Ellen Becker Investment Group is located in Pewaukee, just north of Highway 94, between Highway 164 and Highway F in the Ridgeview Corporate Park, and also in the village of Whitefish Bay in the Equitable Bank Building, across from Winkies. We also service clients in Bonita Springs, Florida. Visit ellenbecker.com for more details. For our regular listeners, you probably heard that we have a new address. Recently, we've moved. Effective after Memorial Day, we're going to be in our brand new beautiful building, and we're going to welcome clients for meetings and visits to our new building. So I understand this is our very first broadcast with the new uh, address and new description. So please stop in and and visit. Today, my guests are uh, the EIG tax team. I have Richard Wallacek, CPA, and Ed Henning, CPA, along with me today. And we're going to talk about all things tax today. So um, as you can imagine, uh, being tax professionals, that makes us very excited today. Yeah, it's going to so, be a riveting conversation here. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, here's, here's kind of what we're planning for the show today. Uh, we're going to start out a little bit with a review of, of last year's tax season and talk a little bit about uh, all things tax as it related to tax year 2022 and how the preparation season went, at least in our opinion, um, and also talk a little bit about things going on with the IRS and how things have evolved, certainly through last tax season. We're also going to talk a little bit about some of the things that are looking different for 2023. We've got some kind of nice things that are going to be happening um, in terms of uh, some tax breaks and some new credits, and we're going to sort of review those. Hopefully down the road as the year progresses, we'll have another opportunity to talk to you in more detail about some of those uh, really specific things. But today we're going to sort of highlight what we're going to see different for 2023. We're also going to focus one of our segments today on college savings plans because I know um, internally we get a lot of questions from our clients about you know the best way to save for college. We've got some new things happening with 529 plans that we want to share with you. And we thought this would be a good show to kind of do a little bit of a deep dive on uh, Edvest here in Wisconsin, but certainly um, all of the state 529 plans. And finally, we're going to also talk a little bit about the new energy credits. So there's some energy credits this year for your home and also for vehicles. And they look a lot different than they have over the last couple of years. So we want to give you a little bit of basic information on that. So, okay, guys, I've done a lot of talking here. (laughs) Tell me what uh, tax season looked like for you this year. I think tax season was uh, a bit easier as compared to the prior years. We didn't have to worry about the stimulus checks or the the second stimulus or the third stimulus (laughs) or anything like that. Right, right. COVID really, uh, the the whole pandemic obviously was a big deal. Mm-hmm. socially and economically. Oh, it, it changed but how we did tax returns. It like really we did. We had to not go into the office. We couldn't go into the office. 
So it was definitely a, a, a dynamic or, or change with how we approach the season. Yeah, and I think, um, uh, again, you know, for our team, one of the really huge benefits that came out of that period of time was uh, it really forced us to make our process um, uh, virtual so that clients did not necessarily have to come to the office. You know, prior to COVID, tax preparation was a pretty paper-intensive pro process, at least in our office. Uh, so we were able to implement some online portals and some e-signatures on the back end, and, and, and we have a process that we can virtually do the entire tax return without really having to see a piece of paper, which has been kind of nice. Mm -hmm. And the adoption rate of that has been increasing year after year. More people are getting on board with the whole online process. Absolutely. Ed, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, having the portal is, has been really nice. Um, like you said, you know, a lot of participation in that over the last couple of years. So um, probably we'll see that, you know, continue to increase into the next couple of years here. Um, as far as, you know, the changes with the returns and everything, uh, advanced child tax credits, another thing that, you know, we didn't have to worry about this year. So, um, yeah, it kind of made a little bit more uh, streamlined this year for tax prep. Right, season. right. And we had no um, extensions from the IRS this year, the second year in a row. Uh, I'll admit it. I do miss those extensions. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy doing tax returns out in, into the month of July or however late it used to be, but... The whole April deadline here, even though it's technically April 15th, in the last few years, we've had a few extra days after that, too. Right, right. So that does help squeeze more returns into more time. Absolutely. Sure. And, uh, it, it, you know, from our perspective, two or three days is kind of a big deal. It's huge, <laughs> right? That's, that's more production right there. Right. Absolutely. So, so thank you to the District of Columbia for celebrating right. Emancipation Day mm -hmm. um, and closing down uh, the, the banks so that uh, we can't actually process tax returns or tax payments, probably more importantly. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really why we've seen that delay. Um, and we'll continue to see that. Uh, it's it's going to be more rare to have tax day on April 15th going forward than it is to see it on the 16th, 17th, or 18th. So, um, so that's that's kind of why we see those those delays now. It's a welcomed delay, I'll say. Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> I think one of the other things that we saw this year was um, a little bit of a change in terms of the the IRS. And uh, as we were kind of talking and preparing for today. Um, I wanted to, to remind people that the Internal Revenue Service, uh, the IRS, is, is actually in place to, to provide service. And over the last few years, that, uh, that service level has declined to a rate that's been uh, really unacceptable, I think, in terms of how um, they're able to help taxpayers, especially during busy season. And so I think um, it was really nice this year to see some improvement. Oh, yeah. If you compare the prior years to this year, it's a night and day difference. Absolutely. Yeah, they have that, you know, stigma with, you know, having to make that IRS phone call taking forever. But it's it's really, you know, been a lot quicker these days. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, we've all heard about the um, Inflation Reduction Act or IRA that uh, added $80 million, I think it was, of funding to the IRS, and they put that to good use pretty quickly. Um, one of the things that we definitely saw an increase um, in was the phone call uh, answering rate. Mm -hmm. uh, the IRS actually did their own um, 
uh, review of that, I guess you'd say, and they said they achieved about an 87% level of service and answered 2 million more calls this tax season, which is, that's a lot. Wow, Um, And I know my own experience when I had to call during busy season, uh, instead of waiting in a queue for an hour or two or sometimes three and not right. ever being answered. Sometimes you, you wouldn't even make it into the queue. Right. Yeah. Often <laughs> the you queue didn't make was it so in. small. Right, right. right. And uh, this year, you know, I was able to uh, get through a couple of times without literally a wait at all that somebody just answered the phone. So mm-hmm. I think that they're they're definitely making some improvements on that. Um, the flip side is I think they're still honestly working through backlog um, that they had from from the COVID period. Uh, we don't need to go into too much detail, but uh, anybody who was waiting for a tax return to be processed or waiting for uh, the ability to do an identity verification check, all of those things were really, really delayed. And so um, it's nice um, that they've made progress. But um, their own uh, studies have shown that they're still not back to where they were prior to that. But they're making progress. Making progress. Yeah, making right. progress. I understand that they still have about uh, two million returns in in their inventory, and most of those are are exceptions. Um, but they're still trying to process through all of that. So if any of you are waiting for tax return information to be processed. Um, I guess you're still waiting yeah, at this right. point. What else What else uh, was important that we want to kind of breach as, as we talk about tax season this year? How do we think things are going to look different in 2023? Do we think that we're going to continue to see some increased service levels from the IRS? Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine, you know, they're kind of, you know, going to get even better, you know, as their this funding is now a year into, you know, process. So I think it's just going to, you know, continue to expand to provide that actual, you know, service that they um, are, you know, that's part of their their name. So Right, right. I know they're working on some expanded digitization of some of their forms, the ability for us to communicate with them more online rather than having to mail or fax or call. Um, And I think all of those things are going to kind of help expedite um, their ability to serve us like I said, not only preparers, but taxpayers as well. Oh, absolutely. Instead of getting a letter in the mail and and writing a response back to mail it back to them, the ability to upload a response is so much quicker. And it it almost feels a bit more safer because it's directly at the IRS website versus going through the postal system, which has the potential for not making it to its destination. Right. Yeah. So that's just one of the the beginnings of how things are going to morph into being more more service related, I'd say. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, we have to also mention that uh, they have made such great progress over the last few years in terms of the security. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I do feel very confident in electronic filing and uploading information. Obviously, it's all sensitive information when it comes to people's social security numbers and tax situations. So I think it's really important that we um, that we do that and that the IRS continues to make progress in that area. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back to Money Sense. I'm Sandra Geisler. 
today. We're talking all things tax, and I'm here with my associates in the EIG tax team, Richard Wallacek and Ed Henning. In this segment, we're going to talk a little bit about things we're going to see new for 2023. That's, that's I always say this is kind of like new playground equipment for us, right? It's, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's fun to have new things to kind of work with and work with our clients on and help them plan and save taxes and all of those things. So let's just jump in and talk a little bit about what some of those things might look like. Yeah, um, so a lot of uh, things going on in 2023. So there's uh, cost of living adjustments for the standard deduction. Um, so that's increased, I think it was about 7% since last year. And then the Social Security benefits uh, had the same cost of living adjustment or you know similar cost of living adjustment of 8.7%. Uh, so it's kind of, you know, obviously help people out with, you know, reducing that tax liability for the standard deduction, you know, might create a little bit of a liability with, um, you know, that Social Security increase. Um, but, think, yeah, just a couple positives, though, as well. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's worth kind of just stopping for a second and talking about those cost of living increases. Um, I think <clears throat> they were they were substantial last year. Uh, but obviously, we were in a period of high inflation last year, so right. I think it was um, it was good to see that some of those numbers were increasing. Um, but it really came down to sort of the inflation rate that we were seeing last year. Right? Didn't those uh, cost of living adjustments increase while Medicare premiums decreased that's a little a, bit? That's yeah. a great point, um, and I think sometimes that gets lost a little bit because because they're automatically withdrawn mm -hmm. from people's social security benefit. And so I think a lot of people don't necessarily pay attention to exactly what uh, what the Medicare premium piece looks like. Um, and I think the base amount went down, it wasn't substantial. No, it was- Six or seven dollars, something, something like that. that. It's about 60 or 70 by the end of the year, which means it's a less, it's a smaller state tax deduction. Mm -hmm. But again, that means you paid less for the same level of Medicare insurance that you had to begin with. Right, right. right. And I understand that that reduction was due to sort of a surplus that they had, uh, that they had expected some costs for some uh, uh, research or medication for Alzheimer's, I think it was specifically. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Um, and then they ended up with a little bit of a surplus because the costs came in a little bit lower than they were expecting. And so it was nice to see that they passed that on to the consumer. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Richard, what else are we looking at uh, uh, new in 2023? Yeah, one of the cool new items here is specifically for the state of Wisconsin where historically, if you had capital loss carry forwards, Wisconsin limited that amount to $500. So new for 2023 is the dollar amount matches the IRS level at the $3,000 mark. So we have seen on a number of client returns where the there's no federal capital loss carryover because you could deduct $3,000 per year. But on the state side of the return, there's thousands of dollars. Some clients it takes at $500 per year, it's like 17 years to deplete that. <laughs> right. And now we can deduct up to $3,000, so it's going to reduce that overall balance or that carry forward at a much quicker rate. So that'll definitely help from a planning perspective of how can we kind of offset that uh, deduction. I think, I think that uh, is nice. Uh, it kind of gets us a little bit excited because we're not going to have different carry forwards once we that sort of too. use that up. Um, right. It'll be consistent um, between the federal and the state returns. 
and uh, that that just we like consistency in numbers, <laughs> right? right? right. Um, yes. And uh, obviously, you know that that twenty five hundred dollar uh, reduction in income on the Wisconsin state return is going to have a little bit of a tax savings mm-hmm. component. Uh, for anybody who's carrying forward losses Mm -hmm. this year. So somebody help me with the math here. Uh, 5% of $2,500 is what, about $75 or so? Ed's pretty good with mental math here. uh, (laughs) You would think as CPAs we'd be really good at that, right? I mean, I like calculators here. 5% of $2,500 is $125. $125. Okay, awesome. Okay. So that's a pretty significant savings for people as well. You know, it all kind of adds up a little bit. So Mm -hmm. we're happy to see that one. And it's not a a delayed thing where you you have to wait so many more years to save that $125. You can capture that much more sooner. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know the 1099Ks were something that we talked a little bit about last year, and I think when we recorded our mid-year show, we, we talked about the, the new sh- threshold and all the new people that were going to get the 1099Ks, and then it didn't happen. Right, which is perfectly okay for the yeah. end of the year and moving <laughs> into the tax season so quickly. But yeah, that, that's another new item for this year is that $600 threshold. Once you receive more than $600, then you'll be expected to receive that 1099k and that's specific to those third parties if you sell stuff on ebay if you're a contractor or of the sorts there those third-party payments are going to generate an additional tax form that you may have not seen in the prior years so last year what happened was we uh had the 600 threshold and then very late in the year they they delayed that uh, requirement, Correct. right, by a year. Yeah, mm-hmm. pushed uh, off for a year. Yeah, okay. So I think I recently read that the Senate was looking to increase that threshold again. Okay. So uh, I guess I'll say to our listeners, stay tuned. Right. right. Um, <laughs> we're, as we do, uh, but we'll kind of wait and see how that plays out this year, whether or not those 1099Ks are going to come to fruition or not but yeah and even on that topic there's so many questions like hey if I give money to a friend or a family member does that get counted into that that transaction total right. or how do you classify here's a business transaction versus a personal gift or, or sending of money because my friend bought me pizza or something exactly and I think uh, the important thing is if you do get a 1099k at the end of the year or you know in January Make sure that you're dealing with it because the IRS is going to assume that that's business income for you and mm-hmm. it's taxable. So even if it is your friend repaying you for the dinner you had, uh, you still need to deal with it in terms of the IRS. So make sure you're giving that to your tax preparer or looking online about how to deal with that if you're self-preparing. Right. We had another little cost of living increase this year when it came to the uh, annual gift exclusion. Yeah, so that's now um, so seventeen thousand up from last year's sixteen thousand. Um, so you know, obviously, you're able to give a little bit more without having to file that uh, gift tax return. Um, you know, if you do have to file, if you're over that threshold, um, you know, you do have to file that gift tax return. The tax. Um, I think the lifetime gift exemption is around the 13 million mark, so we'll not have to pay any taxes on that unless you have, you know, a larger, um, you know, estate, estate mm-hmm. there. So, 
Yeah, and so how many gifts can I make of, of $17,000 or less? So you yourself could make, you know, it could go to really anybody, you know, you can make different gifts as long as they're under that threshold. And let's say, you know, if it's you, you're married, filing jointly, you know, you could you could give 17 to someone and then your your spouse could give 17 to someone as well and stay under that threshold. And it's an unlimited number of people. Right. Yeah. Any, anybody and everybody. Okay. All right. So that's that's important to remember. And and again, for most people, that's really a compliance issue in oh, terms of filing that it, gift tax return if you give more than that. And remember, it's not just cash gifts. It's, you know, uh, gifts of real estate, potentially, uh, you know, items, those kinds of things. If the value is more than 17000 then it requires you to report that to the IRS. Right. And then it takes that $13 million number minus what you gave to give a, whole, a new net number, which, exactly. is, which is still $12 million or $13 at, million and sure. change. At least for now, right? <laughs> right, right. Uh, True. Maybe in a few years we'll be talking about a pretty significant reduction to that. Sure. But through 2025, mm -hmm. uh, we're solid in terms of that large exemption amount. Good. Um, so let's talk about some of the things that happened with uh, the big Secure 2.0 Act. Um, you may recall at the very end of 2019, uh, we got the, the original SECURE Act, and immediately they said we didn't think that that went far enough. They immediately started to plan for what they referred to as SECURE 2.0, and that passed in 2022. So we saw some big changes with that, especially as it relates to retirees. Yeah, I think that bill passed the very end of December, like a right. few days before 2022. Three. Which we're which we're kind of expecting now. It just seems like so often we get tax legislation that passes at the very very end of the year. Right. So and, and then there's always two versions, and you're like, well, what what can we plan for? Which if you have two different options, it's kind of hard to really get a good plan going without saying, well, it could be the Senate version or it could be the House version, and then at the end of the day, they obviously reconcile and produce a, a bill that could be completely different. Exactly, right. yeah, exactly. Yeah, speculation there, yeah. Well, we did see for sure, though, when Secure 2.0 passed, we did see another increase to the RMD, or Required Minimum Distribution Age. So effective now in 2023, that minimum distribution age is 73. Correct, and then if you're born after 1960, it increases to age 75. So that's all of us, right? In this yeah. room? Yeah. All right. So we don't have to take our RMD till age 75. So I'm, Unless if they change it again. Unless they change it yeah, again, right. which, yeah, is, which, yeah. which is certainly an option, right? And, and I think the reasoning behind that really had to do with extended lifespans um, and people, you know, just living longer. And they sort of needed that money to, to stretch out a little bit more. So that was a, that was a welcome uh, change in our world. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like we were just kind of getting in some planning stuff in January and just telling clients that they don't have to take that RMD, you know, at 72 this year, they can wait another year, you know, do kind of what, what they need to do on their end and not have to, you know, have to pay that required minimum distribution. I remember being in some meetings with clients and I'm like, oh, you have to take it at 72. And then they changed it to age 73. So this year, based on prior conversations, it's not really what I had said because the tax law changed. Right, sure. right, yeah. So it's, it's just constantly incorporating what, what that new playground equipment is <laughs> and, and making the most out of it. Right. And there was another uh, 
pretty significant change, I think, to the RMD uh, penalty this year. Yeah, so uh, they do have the reduction. Um, so that was at 50% and now is at 25%. And they do have a you know, caveat if you, if you correct that RMD, you know, take that RMD and satisfy it um, in a timely manner, then it, that goes down to 10%. I know in the past they really haven't, um, you know, assessed, assessed that. that. But um, it's definitely, you know, obviously like more um, – better language now that we we understand yeah. so yeah. and and we're expecting that the irs now will assess the 10 percent penalty right. mm-hmm. so it's really important to make sure that you're paying attention to that rmd age um that you're paying attention to the table that provides the factor that indicates how much you need to take um so those are really important things to work with um certainly with your financial advisor um or or yourself if you're managing that one other thing, uh, we're running out of time on our segment here. Mm-hmm. So much to talk about. <laughs> uh, but one other thing we did want to talk about, because this is important for people who are still working um, and participating in employer plans like a 401k, um, soon there will be an option to uh, provide participants with a match option to go into their Roth. Um, and how does how does that work? Because Roth's typically after tax. So if I'm the employer's putting money into the Roth. How is that getting taxed? It, the individual will be paying the tax on that. Then, yeah, and right? that's going to be right. added to your W-2, uh, like additional compensation. So mm-hmm. you'll be paying the tax on that. But but then you never pay tax on those dollars again. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we love yeah. Roth. And for some people, this is a really great opportunity because maybe their income is a little too high to be able to contribute directly to a Roth. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they've already got a fairly large amount in their tax-deferred accounts. And we really want to see them sort of build up that Roth component. And so for the employers to have the opportunity to do a match is is really exciting for for many uh, employees. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Great. Okay. I think that kind of wraps up 2023. We'll be right back with Money Sense after this. Welcome back to Money Sense. I'm Sandra Geisler, Director of Tax Planning at Ellen Becker Investment Group. And we're back with our guests, Ed Henning and Richard Wallacek, talking all things tax today. In this segment, we really want to do a, a deep dive on 529 plans, which is the educational savings account plans. And uh, we thought we'd just kind of start at a high level and then talk about some of the planning strategies that we use with our clients and some of the things that we're seeing that are going to be looking a little bit different for 2023. Some of the questions sometimes we get from our clients as it relates to how to spend those dollars, how to coordinate with some of the tax uh, tuition credits that might be available. And like I said, just sort of all things 529 plans. So here in Wisconsin, we have a plan called Advest. Um, that is the state-sponsored plan, and we do get a tax deduction for the contributions to that plan. Richard, tell us a little bit about how that deduction works. Yeah, I mean, you, you contribute dollars into the plan. It's a state tax deduction. Uh, the dollar amount this year for 2023 is 3860 per account, per child, per beneficiary. So if you have multiple children or grandchildren that you fund the accounts, those dollars accumulate, which means your tax savings also accumulate there. 
And that is a maximum amount per beneficiary, but Correct. you are not limited to the number of beneficiaries. And, and you're not limited by your income either. Which, which is big because oh, a lot yeah. of credits typically like that or, or um, tax breaks have income limitation components. Correct. Yeah, the, the federal uh, education tax credit has a, an AGI limitation where if you're above that amount, you cannot get that education credit where that pretty much means the only way you can get a discount on the cost of college is by participating in these Advest vehicles or these 529 plans. Right. So one of the things when we work with younger clients or, or even new grandparents, sometimes they'll say, well, I, I want to save uh, for, for the child's education, but, you know, I'm not sure. What if they don't go to college? What if, I don't know, maybe uh, what, what's the benefit of really saving in a 529 plan as opposed to just a regular savings account? Um, you know, obviously you, you do get that Wisconsin tax deduction. Um so that's that's pretty key there. Um, as far as you know, there's other you know if you wanted to add a little bit more than that that three thousand eight hundred sixty amount, um, you can if you add more than that, that actually carries forward into the next tax year. So um, don't don't really limit it on how much um, you know contributions you really make to that. You know as you can carry it into future years. So that's nice too. But. Yeah, the deduction is huge, of course. You know, we really want to take advantage of that when we can. But I think uh, another really big component is the really the, the tax-free growth of that kind of works like a Roth, it, right? Right, pretty much, yeah. That, and it's not just for college either. You, you can use it for the grade schools leading up to college as Yeah, that's well. an important point. That changed a few years ago. So hmm. private elementary school and private high school um, – is eligible to use your 529 plans for that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so, so it's flexible. It's just really geared towards education. That, that's pretty much the only silo that it's right. kind of uh, like a, a threshold or a framework around those dollars. Mm -hmm. So okay. how do I how do I guarantee the the that that growth is going to be tax free for my child? Right, like a qualified expense. Yeah, right. A, a so tell me a little bit about what the qualified expenses look like. Uh, I mean, your typical tuition, uh, school-related expenses or supplies. Um, Books. Right. What about travel? Is tra is, like travel, is that something? I think travel kind of works. Any, okay. any of the – there's certain qualified expenses. If the institution requires certain kinds of equipment – that too. Yep. You're in a medical class, you need a stethoscope. You're in a PT class, you need, you know, some, I don't know. So, well, like, I'm an accountant, I don't know anything about PT. <laughs> <laughs> so, it wouldn't be anything you wouldn't be buying unless you were attending school, pretty Correct. much. Right. 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 Okay. Okay. Um, and so, what if I wanted to, to overfund uh, a 529 plan? So, uh, I've, I've got a new grandbaby, I'm so darn excited, and I, I've, I, Got a good bonus at work this year, and I, I just I want to put enough away so that they can attend, you know, private high school. So um, I, I want to put fifty thousand dollars in an account. How does that work? Can I do that? Absolutely. Is there a uh, limit to how much I can put in? There's a limit on the deduction. Okay. That you have right. Okay. The, the three thousand eight sixty this year. Okay. Everything else carries forward, and then. It continues to grow tax-free, obviously. Is that smart to do, to, to kind of overfund it early on? I think it gives you options. I mean, they're, they're, we always talk about diversification. So within sure. 
a particular range you would want to fund it to an extent mm -hmm. and then uh, going forward i guess one of the changes that we're leading up to is the ability to roll a 529 into a roth that oh that sounds like an exciting right, option. right? so yeah. there you go there's your your roth account for education that goes into a regular roth account at the end of the day there but there's there's definitely some rules that restrict the ability to get those dollars from the 529 into the roth uh, one of those is a, a 15 year rule where the account has to be open for 15 years before you can start doing those Roth rollover pieces. So that's a really uh, good reason to, here. right, <laughs> that's a really good reason to kind of get that saving started mm -hmm. early right. on, right? Rolling. You yeah. know, year one, two, three in that, in that area. The fear of putting too much into mm -hmm. the account is not as, as fearful anymore because right. you can still get it into a right. Roth at the end of the day. It just takes time to get there. And there's some other things that we can do if we if we find that we've overfunded. Oh, right? absolutely. Like um, the, the scholarships or whatnot, you can pull out the distributions. Yep. And I Transferring think... Transferring to other, other kids, um, other beneficiaries, I think, as well. Yeah. And there's no limit on that either. You can transfer it to really any other beneficiary. It can be another one of your children. It can be yourself. It can be your grandchildren. So that's a, that's a huge opportunity as well. And I think we can also use it for student loan repayments up to $10,000. That's right. Correct. Yeah. So that's a nice option as well. Um, so I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Richard. I wanted to circle back a little bit on... Uh, moving the 529 funds to a Roth. So you talked about the fact that the account has to be opened for 15 years. So we're usually at this point talking more about our, our child or grandchild has completed their higher education and we still have funds remaining. Maybe we don't have another beneficiary uh, immediately available to transfer those funds to. But we, what we'd like to do with that money is to kind of start saving for their their retirement by moving it into the Roth. So if we've satisfied the 15-year rule, what are our other constraints? Uh, the other another one is the the ability to move the dollars into a Roth is restricted by how much you're eligible to contribute directly into a Roth. So talk to me a little bit about that. So there's an income component, correct, and there's an annual limit component, correct. So the uh, limit is based on the Roth contribution limit for the year. Right, which means you also have to have earned income to be able to contribute into a Roth or roll it from the 529 to the Roth. Exactly. And we're also limited to $35,000 total being able to be moved into the Roth. So, And there's another and, like the last five <laughs> years of the contributions cannot be rolled to Roth. Right. So there, there's all these different rules and, and restrictions, if you will, or the framework around what can and cannot be done that you'll want to either research on your own or work with your tax advisor to develop a plan so that everything goes to plan when you get to that 15-year mark. We should also mention that this is not effective until 2024. Yep. Right. And uh, as you can see, because there's a lot of uh, limitations here, a lot of details, we probably will be expecting some additional guidance from the IRS before this gets rolled out. Sure. Um, because as we all know, we, we get these tax laws and then we go to put it in real practice and there's all kinds of unique situations that probably the IRS will have to address. So 
Our goal today really is to just sort of share that information. If you have an account with a balance and potentially you're thinking you might be eligible based on some of the requirements in terms of the account uh, opening, in terms of the total dollar amount, in terms of your beneficiary actually being eligible with earned income under certain restrictions. Those are all important components, but we can't do it till 2024. So we wanted to just share that information with you today so that you know that it's an option potentially down the road. You just got me thinking here. I, I came to the conclusion that uh, non-tax accountants tend to generate these laws and then tax accountants are the ones that have to apply the laws. Exactly. Right? And then that's where we have all the questions and exactly. all the rules and like, does it work? Does it not work? Or how can we make it work? And that's where we really thrive in what we do here. Right. We're those people that you call when you read, contact your tax advisor <laughs> for further information, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> all right. Before we get off this subject, uh, I know, Ed, this is near and dear to your heart. We wanted to talk just a little bit about sort of coordinating your AdVest distributions with those tax credits available on the federal side. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, we do have the American Opportunity Tax Credit. Uh, you know, that's for the first four years of education. So, you know, that, that credit is about 25, so it's $2,500. And um, if you've, you really have to fund that to get those credits, you have to fund the, you know, your tuition or, you know, education expenses outside of that AdVest to get that credit because they don't want you, you know, double dipping on that. You're getting the Ed AdVest Wisconsin deduction and then, you know, being able to apply that. Growth. Right, yep. right. So being able to apply that to education credits, they have a little, you know, some parameters around that as far as, you know, it just has to be separate. So let's say you had, you know, $10,000 in, ed you know, education expenses, you know, you could put six through the AdVest and then um, pay the other 4000 just out of um, just, you know, a regular savings account or, you know, whatever payment. And uh, obviously, you know, capitalize on maximizing that education credit. So it's it's a, a big difference if, you know, you have a portion that goes to AdVest and you're, you're limiting that tax credit. It's, it's a lot of money, so it's it's nice to be able to maximize that. Yeah, absolutely. That coordination is really important, and certainly talk with your tax advisor if you need any additional guidance on that. Great. Well, that wraps up our conversation on 529 plans for today. Always, if you have questions or we can be of assistance, you can always call us at our office, which is 262-691-3200. I'm Sandra Geisler, and we will be back shortly. Welcome back to Money Sense. I'm Sandra Geisler. Today we're talking all things tax with Ed Henning and Richard Wallasack. For our final segment today, we wanted to talk about some new credits available in 2023. We have a new residential energy credit, and we also have some new clean vehicle credits. So we wanted to give you a little bit of uh, a preview or a little bit of an overview today so that if you're maybe in the market for some home improvements or potentially even a new um, electric vehicle, that you have an idea of what federal tax credits might be available for you this year. 
So Richard, why don't you tell us a little bit about that residential clean energy credit? Yeah, that's the new name of it this year. Now it's the residential clean energy credit. Um, it pretty much applies to solar, wind, geothermal, battery storage, technology, etc. So it's, it's pretty much uh, kind of formula driven, right? It's 30% of the cost of, and it can cover f equipment that was installed from 2022 all the way up to 2033. So this credit will be around for a number of years going forward as you start to learn more about it or hear more about it or your calm appliances, if they wear out over time, <laughs> eventually you're gonna have to replace the air conditioner, the furnace, etc. So um, one thing that's unique about these energy credits, it's generally for where you live most. So these credits don't necessarily apply to those rental properties. It's your primary residence that would qualify for these things. And, and your second home's not gonna qualify either, right? Unfortunately. Right, right, yeah, right. So that particular credit has to do with sort of those really bigger energy components, right? Geothermal heat or hydro heat they're, or... They're significant expenses, right? The yeah. solar... Solar like, panels. Yep, those are not cheap. The right. wind, wind turbines, those are huge. Those are not cheap. <laughs> but a 30% tax credit, if I'm if I'm spending $10,000 on my solar panels, a $3,000 credit is it, it pretty valuable, yep. right? And that does help to offset the cost of that. Correct. And I've seen some states also offer incentives where you get the federal tax credit and then the state on top of that gives you sure. additional dollars back as an energy type of credit as well. So it kind of compounds the savings and then it would reduce the overall out-of-pocket cost. Okay. And this credit then is calculated when we do the tax return yep. and it's added to your refund basically or offsets any tax liability that you would have. That's a good point. If you do not owe taxes, you cannot claim an energy credit. Oh, so you, okay. So you good do to need know. to have some taxes from wages or investments or social security, pensions, right. you name it. And again, we're talking about tax liability, not necessarily a balance due. Correct. So we don't have to adjust withholding or anything. Yep. We're just looking for the fact that we have taxes owed. Taxable income, correct. Absolutely. Right. Okay. There's another component to um, energy credits on, on the home side, on the residential side. Um, Ed, why don't you tell us a little bit about that credit? Yeah, uh, kind of encompasses that same period, you know, 2023 through 2032. Um, so it's it's 30% of the total, you know, project cost. And that max credit was, you know, previously $500 in 2022 and previous. So um, actually that was the, the lifetime credit. So you really were limited, you know, once, let's say a couple of years back, you had a $500 credit based on, you know, some windows you bought. And then some doors as well, and you maximize that credit. You were you were not able to you know get another credit the next year. Now they got rid of the lifetime credit, so um, the the max per year is now twelve hundred dollars. But they don't have that uh, lifetime limit, so that's pretty nice. But it's it's basically you know for windows, doors, home energy audits, and they have kind of a, a price point on those credits for each of the, these items, such as you know for the doors, it's two fifty a door. $500 total on that. Uh, the windows you get 600 for, and then home energy audits are $150. Um, so those are, the, those are the maximum credit amounts that you're allowed on an annual basis. Right, yeah. And then, um, you know, they do have the, like, as far as qualified heat pumps, biomass stoves, and biomass boilers, that's a $2,000 max credit per year. 
Um, so in tandem, you can kind of get to that $3,200 mark um, if you had, you know, all these things going on in one year. Yeah, so. So, so maybe from a planning perspective, because we no longer have that lifetime limit, um, maybe I do a couple windows this year and a couple okay. windows next year, or I do, you know, so that I can kind of maximize that credit year over year. Does that seem like that's something that would make sense for consumers? Seems like Absolutely, to get yeah. the most credit for your dollars, that's what you would do, would stretch it over a time period just to lock in those credits. I'm not sure if that means you pay additional installation fees every time they come back to kind of offset the federal tax credit. <laughs> yeah, sure. But food for thought there, if you're if you're thinking strategically here, you have certain rules, and within those rules, you can only claim so much per year. So what if you were to do something at the end of the year and then try again at the beginning of the next year? Granted, it's winter around here, and you may not want to be replacing windows that time of the year. Mm-hmm. It would get the whole project done, you know, within a short time frame. It would just be between two calendar years. Well, Richard is by far our most strategic thinker. So (laughs) I I like that strategy. um, And I like being able to take advantage of that. And then remind me, Ed, is this a a refundable credit? Or is this one like the one Richard discussed in terms of requiring tax liability? Yeah, you do have to have that tax liability. It's a non-refundable credit. Okay. All right. Something to consider for planning purposes. Okay, so we're looking at at the envelope exterior items, exterior doors, windows, roof, those kinds of things. Even like the air conditioner too, and it's it's kind of interesting. You you look at the credit says, oh, you can get twelve hundred dollars, but if you replace your air conditioner, only the first two thousand dollars qualify. Only thirty percent of that two thousand dollars is a few hundred dollars of a tax credit that goes towards the maximum total, but it's not the full twelve hundred dollars. So what I'm hearing us say is that we got to do a little research before we know exactly what this credit is going to be that we're eligible for based on what we're purchasing or installing this year. And it might not be as much as we're anticipating. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So for our listeners, good to know that those are available. Uh, Do we have any income limitations on those? Or I don't believe there are. Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Excellent. Okay. So make sure you're doing a little research or call your tax advisor if you have some questions on those credits. Um, Also new this year is the... uh, clean uh, vehicle credit. That credit is worth up to $7,500. It's all about the battery. So there's some really crazy detailed instructions about what qualifies and what doesn't qualify. It uh, has to do with some of the raw materials being used. It has to do with the battery capacity. Uh, There's a lot of very, very specific uh, rules and uh, requirements to be eligible for this credit. But what I do want listeners to know is that there is a website available that will list by VIN the individual vehicles to know if that vehicle is eligible for the credit. So the manufacturers are basically being required to track the components of those batteries and the battery life. Only certain manufacturers are eligible. There are income limitations on the um, clean vehicle credit. So if you make too much, you're not going to be eligible for the credit. That's a change from the prior year. Um, And there's also some limitations on how much the vehicles themselves cost. So uh, there's restrictions and there's some constraints. Um, But the important thing is that you double check that website to make sure that the vehicle that you're purchasing um, by VIN 
is eligible for the $7,500 tax credit. I mean, you make it sound like everyone's already done the hard work for you. You just have to double check to see if it qualifies. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think the important thing is um, to just make sure that you're that you're Googling, finding that um, at the, uh, I believe it's the Department of Energy that's maintaining that website. And uh, I also wanted to mention that you do have an option of transferring that credit to the dealer. Um, so rather than waiting for the credit to be available for you when you file your tax return, um, you can transfer it to the dealer um, to offset the cost of the vehicle. However, you do still have to qualify um, to do that transfer. So Is that transfer coming up in the future or is that current? I, it, it's available now. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, nice. so be on the lookout then for the uh, energy efficient home improvement credit. No longer a lifetime limit on that, a $1,200 max. We've also got the residential clean energy credit and we've got the new clean vehicle credit. So some really good things happening in terms of some tax savings for us this year. We like tax savings. We yeah. absolutely do. <laughs> well, thank you for being with us today. Money Sense airs on Saturdays from 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock p.m. and on Sundays from 12 noon to 1 o'clock p.m. If you like today's show and want to know more, please visit www.ellenbecker.com or call us at 262-691-3200. Don't forget our new address after Memorial Day. As always, I hope that I have made a difference in your personal and financial well-being. Remember, before we plan, before we advise, before we invest, we always listen.